If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. Welcome back to Stoke the Fire. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for all of your interactions with us on the internet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And uh, also, if you've been watching live on gasdigital.com, all hails to you. Thank you so much for that support and helping us out, spreading the word. Um, this week, I'm really happy to introduce a dear friend of mine from back in the day and someone I admire very much as a writer and an artist, um, Mr. Sage Francis, and of course, my co-host and my good friend, Matt Stocks. And we're going to just get right into this, man. I'm excited for this. Thank you for coming on, Sage. I appreciate well, thank it. Thank you for thanks for asking me. It's a great excuse to catch up with you. Absolutely, man. Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, we we watch each other on the internet, but it's a totally different thing to actually see you and talk to you and see what you've uh, you've been doing in your life lately. The massive transition from the guy that I knew sitting on the floor on your laptop, getting your career started to being a father. So we'll get to that. So, Matt, if you want to kick it off in true fashion, let's get this thing going, man. Yeah, Sage, it's interesting for me as an English fellow because I don't know him personally, but I'm I'm good friends with his good friends, Chris and Stu, and I know of him, and um, I know that he has a record label in the UK called Speech Development Records. Um, I know you've put out a lot of music with him. Scroobius Pip is who I'm talking about. So for me, to learn through Jesse that you two used to like room together and live together in New York is no, just... Rhode Island. Oh, Rhode Island, sorry. It's one of those moments where my two worlds have collided and I just had no idea that there was a connection between you and Jesse. I never would have. Um, so I would love to hear, first of all, about you know your two shared histories and kind of coming up, growing up together, living together, uh, how that all came about. Uh, so Sage, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I want to, actually, you go. I'm curious. Go. You go. Because you mentioned the... Just earlier today, I was because I was just reminiscing on on our living arrangement and how I would often just lay on the floor on my <laughs> laptop, and I, I still have that laptop. It's like a boxy, beige, just hard um, brick of a laptop from back in the day um, that I saved because I save all my stuff because I'm a pack rat. But um, it was an artist house. It was an artist living. It was like the only type of space I've lived in like that where the collection of characters was everyone was so weird and interesting and fun and um I don't know how much I appreciated it at the time because I, I felt like life was going by so fast I just was uh yeah I was in I was at the very start of my career and that's when I was recording my first studio album when I was living with you guys um, and you guys were recording the Kill Switch Engage first album. And so we kind of were privy to each other's, um, uh, I don't know, putting <laughs> the, the start of how everything was going to be for 20 years. <laughs> this is crazy. And I recorded, you know, I wrote and recorded Makeshift Patriot there, which was my first viral audio hit. Um, so, so much, and it wasn't that long. Like, what did we live a year together? Yeah, about that. Yeah. And there was a lot of, I was, I was touring at the time. Um, so I wasn't always there. I was in and out and just, we were sometimes ships passing in the night, but um, th those are some of my funnest times ever. Just living in that place with those people and me, I think I was playing um, 
Bridge Over Troubled Water, the uh, the Simon and Garfunkel record on repeat. And I remember one time you actually got upset about it. <laughs> I don't remember that, but yeah. It Cecilia. Well, it, it takes a, it takes a lot. Listen, it no, it takes a lot to to disturb Jesse. He's such a chill cat, and uh, he, and he can repress frustration. Oh but you could tell, like, because I'm <laughs> I play things on repeat. And like he just had enough of that record at, at a certain point, he was like, "Oh, we're gonna play that again, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, "Yep." Tippy tap away on my laptop, listening to Paul Simon and Garfunkel. Now, <laughs> Sage, were you looking for a sample in particular to use, or were you just absolutely all about that record? Yeah, I just love the sound of that album. It's still one of my favorites of all time, it's, and it's a short record too, so you can. Like it would repeat often. Um, it's just it was a it's calming music. I enjoy music that calms me. I think that the song "The Boxer" on that record, I think that is the heaviest drum sound I've ever heard. I always wind up my mates. I'm like, you think Slipknot's heavy? Forget about Slipknot. Listen to the percussion sounds on the Boxer when it goes. It sounds like the you know the four horsemen yeah. of the apocalypse just I hammering down. Huge, huge sound. I'm with you, dude. I'm the with you. The way they engineered yeah, that record. Yeah. It's fine. This is what so good Jesse, about Go ahead. What was it like? What was it like for you? Because you owned the house. So I actually paid you rent. You were the landlord. Yeah. And you were the, you know, you're the cool landlord. Like every obviously it was all of our house. And yeah. I think, you know, people probably took advantage of that and probably you felt like you were taken advantage of several times um, or just not sure how to facilitate landlord duties when everyone in the house is your friend. That must have yeah. been weird. That was definitely difficult for sure. And looking back on it, I was ill equipped for many things uh, that I was going through at the time. <laughs> You know, being a young marriage, a career starting and being a landlord, all things that I was ill-equipped for, for sure. Uh, and I look back on those times with with joy. It's definitely all fond memories of being a kid. And it's interesting doing this and hearing that story. And I don't even recall that story, but that, that just goes to show you how much, if we were to all sit in a room together and remember, I'm sure we would all be busting out laughing with some of the shit that we went through. And I've got a great memory that I'm going to drop at the top of this just because it's, to me, it's so hysterical. Well, there's many, but on the same tip as that with you sitting on your laptop on the ground, which is a regular occurrence, you were running, you were responding to people on the internet. You were running your, you're filling out your um, album sleeves. You are nonstop working when I saw you. So you'd come home from tour, just do your thing. And I always admired it. It was to see your hustle was admirable. And you had such a way of just get, getting into your lap, laptop, into your space where anything going around you, you are partially paying attention, but there's a huge part of you that was just doing your shit. And I remember I was trying to grow weed in the, uh, in the closet that was just off to the left of the <laughs> back door. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Mikey, one of our roommates who was just really sweet, really hyper intelligent poetic and English major kind of guy. Um, he came home from a stressful job. He was working at the local vegetarian place, which the owner was very stressful to deal with. He came home and smoked weed and was running up and down the street, just making noise. And the poor little old lady that lived next to us called the cops. So the cops came and basically were kind of trying to raid the house. Cause you know, we're a bunch of artistic creatives living in under the same roof. It was, I think it was like five or six of us at one point. And uh, the cops were trying to bust in the door and I had my weed plants. So I'm like sweating bullets, like, holy shit, they found my crops. Like I'm screwed. Everyone's running around the house high, you know, whatever. Sage didn't drink, didn't do drugs, which is all business on his laptop. And everybody in the house is running around crazy, trying to keep the cops out. Cops came in. I think he, well, actually, I don't go ahead. We did, we didn't have to let the cops in. So that's why I was like, what are you doing? You have, you have crops of weed in the cabinets and I don't know how many cops came in, but it was several. And I'm just like, I'm just on my stomach. Cause I'm work. That's how I would work on my laptop laying down. And I'm, I'm looking around, just cops are walking through this house and I'm just like, whatever happens, happens. I got to get my work done. On my laptop. <laughs> no, but that was his whole Thankfully, thing. Nothing though. happened. They didn't, I mean, they didn't, yeah 
But, you know, I loved that about him, though. He just was in his own world. And then, you know, when he did interact with people, especially if they were like strange, odd people we'd bring in, he would have characters, which Matt, I was telling you about this earlier, like he would just, you know, he didn't smoke cigarettes. He put a cigarette in his mouth and keep it in his mouth and talk with the cigarette through the entire night or put a wig on. I mean, he would embody these Andy Kaufman like moments. And I just remember looking back and be like, how insane is this guy? I don't, I can't get a read on him. But looking back on it, dude, you were brilliant. You were fucking hysterical. And what a joy to live with. But yeah, it was really a, a flash in the pan, but uh, amazing to be able to work on. Those, those days those days were so interesting and everything felt fresh and new. And like, yeah, I was going through characters and um, just figuring myself out as an artist and as a business owner. Um just at the start of like the strange famous records and how I could build something that just seemed impossible right up until the internet became available to everybody. Uh, then I saw a path that could be used, which before I had no idea, uh, you know, a white kid from Rhode Island could have any type of career in hip hop, especially being a weird white kid, like not, not the cool white kid, you know, I, I was a weirdo. I still am a weirdo. I, I recognize that more and more each day in family life because I have to temper a lot of my um, impulses just to be bizarre or say something off kilter. Cause like, I don't want kids growing up with a weird understanding of how humans are. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm just a very straight, you know, straightforward dad. And, and, but then I'm like, man, if I didn't have kids around, I'd be doing this thing that I'd, I'd rather be saying this thing, but I have to say this thing. So now it's all in my head, which will probably come out in interesting ways uh, in whatever creative stuff uh, I'm able to accomplish, which I haven't been able to do much at all over the past, you know, year and a half, but it's on its way. It sounds like the character you're now playing is that of a dad. That's the new role. Um mm -hmm which we will definitely yep. we'll definitely get to that in a moment's time i want to keep it in in the past for now um because i want to sort of you know fill in some of the blanks in my mind um what was the song you mentioned a moment ago sage that was your first like viral track that ended up getting a bit of attention uh, makeshift patriot so i was living with jesse when 9 11 happened and we were glued to the television and the news reports as everyone was but I noticed um, I had recently just graduated from the University of Rhode Island with a degree in journalism. And um, I feel like that gave me, it made me hyper aware of what was happening in the news reports and how uh, news anchors were acting and what they were reporting on and, and what kind of fear they were striking in their, their viewership in order to keep people glued, afraid. Um, and that's where I wrote, I started, uh, I, I would jot down all the strange phrasings that the reporters were saying, the things that would repeat. And, um, I mean, a month later on 10, 11, I had already had everything recorded and ready to go. And I released it for free on Napster. And that became my, yeah, like I said, it, it just kind of spread like wildfire. Cause so soon after nine 11, no one dared speak in a way that would make them sound anti-American or that, you know, they didn't think that USA was number one forever and ever, and we never do anything bad. So I, I released it kind of scared um, what kind of backlash I would receive, but thankfully uh, it just it struck a lot of people in a way where they're like, they would later tell me, you know, I was thinking all these things, but I was too afraid to say anything like that. Um, and it was nice to hear someone else, you know, voice that opinion or actually, you know, bring attention to the fact that the, the, the news was full of shit in a lot of ways. And so was the government. <laughs> What's your recollection of, of hearing that song for the first time, Jesse, and, um, you know, kind of coming to terms with that event through that filter of what Sage was saying in the song. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it's a powerful moment for me as a writer and an artist uh, and as a human being. Because um, at the time I was just stunned. I remember I had come home from work and we all gathered, like you said, we all gathered around and I was watching his reaction 
And instead of just being shocked, he was processing on a whole other level than anybody was in that house. And I didn't, he was, I would say this, Sage, and I give you credit for this. You were the first person to help me read between the lines when it came to media. I always knew something was off. I always knew like, you know, mainstream media can be total bullshit, but hearing you, as you started to map out the lyrics, I remember you had the dry erase board you used to write stuff on every once in a while and you put up lyrics here and there. And I remember just seeing that song develop and being intrigued by it. And, you know, I remember you and Jared saying, well, they keep repeating that over and over again. They're showing us this thing over and over again. And it was just hyping people up. And I remember there was a huge backlash towards, um, in Providence, especially there was a, a sixth man who was on the the train and people like attacked him thinking he was Muslim and like seeing the backlash happen and how the media was really driving this anger, fear, hatred, and a very Orwellian thing before I even connected the dots and hearing that song and then seeing it, you perform it for the first time and watching your whole trajectory from that point on was mind blowing really. And was inspirational for me. And I wrote a song called life to lifeless on the alive or just breathing record. That was around the same time, giving my sort of point of view of like mourning the loss of people and not really being able to come to terms with it, but to, to see his journey and to hear the lyrics and you wrote it in such a way where it was smart. You weren't being blatantly, you know, preaching at anybody. There was no like shoving something down someone's throat. It was very observational. You wrote it like a journalist would write it. And I think that's why that song is timeless because it's just laid out in, in such an eloquent, eloquent way to make you think. That song just makes you think regardless of where you stand on the political scale. You were a thinker and you help people read between the lines and I'm one of them inspirational for sure well thank you yeah i appreciate that uh, i remember my inspiration was for all that we were feeling in that moment and it was so intense and we were scared um but there were so many things we were feeling and so much was happening and i know that moments like that can be fleeting and then a month or a year later you don't quite remember it how it actually was so i wanted to document the phrasings and the feelings that we were experiencing so that we could hashtag never forget. Um, I didn't want it to be used uh, to start a war, which it did, um, and endless wars, multiple wars. I just, I could see the future and I hated it. And I wanted to document really what I was experiencing before anyone tried to whitewash my brain and say, no, nah, that's not really how it was. People who lived through it and listened to that song, I'm sure there's phrasings in there and sounds and different things about it that will bring them right back to where they were when they had no idea what was going on. It was so scary. And, but that didn't mean we were supposed to channel all of our hate toward one type of person or a skin color or religion that, you know, unfortunately that it, events like that can easily sway people toward ignorant actions and ignorant thoughts and stoke the ignorance. And that's exactly what was going on. That's all what we were all experiencing. And then for the next several years, we had to suffer the aftermath of that and, and navigate it and continue to try to make sense of how are we going to make this better? How do we stop this war? How do we get out of this war? Um, I could easily have been pegged as a political artist if that is the only type of music I make, but it's not. So, you know, people will be like, where's makeshift Patriot part two. And I'm like, you, you don't, that's not how it works. I mean, I have other political type songs, but that's just, I don't live and breathe politics. It's, uh, politics is a part of life and the personal can be political. So that is how a lot of my music um, deals with politics, I guess, not in a straightforward manner, but it's, it's an undercurrent of the lyrics. Mm, that's your poetic side coming out. That's why you're, I mean, first and foremost to me, like you're a brilliant poet. And I remember you were the guy that also turned me on to being, going to slams and seeing people compete with poetry, which is a whole other world I was not privy to. And seeing you do this piece, I think it was called Got Milk. I'll never forget it. You made us laugh and you made us people in the audience tear up. <laughs> Do you remember that shit? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've scrubbed it from the internet because I, I actually hate it. But um, it's, oh. it was really just a shock value poem. <laughs> it was still, um, as a young, impressionable but, person, it made an impact, though. <laughs> and, and back then, 
the slams the slam scene was was burgeoning it was kind of brand new and it was exciting there was it was electric i remember packing in as220 where it was so filled just people were all over the floor they didn't have seats i have a picture actually of you at one of them um in one of my old old books i'll dig it up and show you at some point but um again a special time where we're we're just young artists figuring out this new adult world um the world is ours at that point I, I couldn't stomach a, a poetry slam these days. I just, no way I'm going to sit yeah. through one yeah. of those. They just, they annoy me to no end, but that's what happens. You know, you can burn yourself out in any scene. It's, I find it tough to be heavily active in any one thing for too long without noticing all of the, the bullshit that pops up. It's, it's so familiar, all the patterns and the people who are just in it for the wrong reason and the people who figure out the tricks in order to get by or to exceed uh, excel and i'm like ah i can't i can't deal with that but back then it was brand new um the the rules were kind of bendy they, it, you know it kind of were were just free we we were more free i think i wanted to ask you to about that cool whole things. battle rap scene um fascinating to me and i'd love to hear your take on whether or not you think you're not interested in it, which is fair enough, but do you think that that scene could exist in the same way today with the age of political correctness that we're in where, you know, stereotypes are very much out, like you're not really allowed to fall back on those in comedy anymore? Do you think that the the tropes of that format could still exist in this world we're in now? And obviously with camera phones and stuff, and I mean, it must have been a, a much more naive in one way seeing as you say because it was new and it, it hadn't yet you know ran its course but also free and all bets are off kind of scene as well yeah the the rap battle scene was different from the slam scene um and even back then even in when i was heavily active in rap battles was in 1999 and 2000 I, it, it really started to taper off after 2001 and I honestly wasn't heavily active in that scene, but I could do it. And it's how I made my name for a lot of uh, people in the hip hop world. So I would get, you know, if I won a big battle, that means my name would appear in um, publications and then people would search my name on Napster and get my music. And then I could tour wherever I had a fan base. It's that's exactly how it all played out. And cause it was all perfect timing, the way all those dominoes fell. It was, there was no master plan, but it was like, if, if you could devise a master plan for how a virtual unknown artist in Rhode Island within a year can become a, 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 a guy who, who tours the world without anyone's help, uh, you know, without a label behind you, without financial backing or anything that's man you, you couldn't have you could not have like planned it better but um even back then we were there is a battle scene today it's not the same but they they still say the same ignorant dumb shit all those tropes exist there if i don't know if you watch any of the battle leagues but they're, they're all on youtube and um they still say a lot of really offensive and off-color shit is that which still is fine the, the crux of but that I, scene, I, I felt like still yeah yeah because you're hit you're hitting the lowest common denominator um and as far as like stuff that can shock the crowd and get a laugh and people can be silly and childish together um so it makes you kind of it, it gets a bigger reaction than it ought to just because it's so faux pas i would say um some comedians exist off that as well obviously they're not mainstream obviously they can't you know pull that stuff off on on mainstream uh, media outlets but um yeah there is still a scene like that but even back then what i was trying to say before is we were i hated how every battle was about how gay the other guy was um so we were fostering an environment to make it whack if anyone would imply you were gay and you're bad because you're gay so honestly i there was a time period in in the freestyle battles where if the other guy said that, if a person said that to their opponent, they would lose points from the crowd. They'd be like, ah, we're over all that. Like this, you know, this, that's not where we're at anymore. And it's sad for me to go back to battles now and see like 
a dude calling another dude a faggot. Like it's as if like he's really getting at him and that makes his, his battle dope. <laughs> he was like, get yeah. the fuck out of here with that old bullshit. But yeah, it's still around. I don't know if it's ever going to go away. There's always going to be a faction of people who are driven by the lowest common denominator. Well, you, that being ignorance. Admit. Sometimes it can be funny. <laughs> Do you lose friends by going too far uh, with the insults? Can that happen? Can it affect, or did it affect in your experiences in the past personal relationships? You just maybe went that little bit too far and they never oh. quite forgot it. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> uh, Any springs I, I mean, I've been frustrated in battles. Nah, I wouldn't even call him out because I don't ever want to have to answer to him. But um, <laughs> when I think I think what was really insulting was when you saw someone go too far for the sake of them gaining an edge, but they didn't have to do it in a way that they knew was foul. And and, and I don't know. These are just these are unwritten rules of any type of. It's you know it's a comedy role, so everything's on the table. But um, I'm sorry I can't be more specific because I don't even really want to talk about it. But I know I've said stuff to people that made them kind of not be cool with me forever, <laughs> and and you know that's fine too. I I mean I'm I'm the perpetrator. I've also been the victim, and those are the risks you take when you involve yourselves in such immature contests. You know you got to you know you got to grow a spine and be like. You know, but the important thing in the battle, and no one would ever know if I was insulted because the way to win a battle is to show that nothing affects you. And so that was my demeanor. And that gave me a, a greater edge over a lot of people who couldn't control their emotions. Um, so <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the whole game within a game is what I was inspired by. I love that about battle rap. I love being so nervous to the point where like, you could vomit like you're so nervous. You're about to step in front of 5,000 people at the, you know, at the biggest battles, you're a huge stage. Um, and you're going to say things you're not even sure of yet because you don't really know what your opponent's going to say. So you have to act on the fly. You don't know over what beat it's going to be. So you really to, to rely on the moment and to be comfortable enough in your skill set that, you know, Hey, even if I don't have the best rhyme, I can pick apart what he's doing in a way that makes the crowd notice something and put it in a funny way. Like you have to be confident enough where you're not shook and you, you start like digging in your head for, for like um, pre-prepared insults that just aren't as effective in a live environment in a freestyle environment. So yeah, those, and those days are gone and I would never involve myself in that again. <laughs> only yeah. like as a joke you know for a comedy like not serious like i don't want to i don't want a rapper to like pick apart my life and uh, like cry yeah i don't want to cry <laughs> on the stage so we'll move on i just have one thing to say and then we'll move on um the character you would you won a competition in character if i remember was it zolzan was that the character yeah yeah so, so that was the wig for that <laughs> All right, so let's move well, on. Well, I wanted to create a character. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> Go ahead. The character was important because I didn't want to I didn't want to be pegged as a battle battle rapper either. You know, I didn't want to be pegged as a political rapper. I didn't want to be boxed in as a battle rapper. So I wanted to to make things amorphous and so my battle persona was Zalzan. And that way it first of all it made people they didn't know how to pronounce the name. They didn't like, it's hard for them to like process what's going on. And the character of Zalzan was he proudly embodied all the white things people would make fun of if you were a white rapper. So I would have my Metallica shirt on. It's like, you cannot diss me for liking metal because I already own it. So what else are you going to do? You know? And that was, that was my, um, that was a little trick. I thought yeah, it was we should brilliant. move past dude. the battle. Yeah, let's move past it. But that, I, dude, props because I remember that was in, incredible. So, I guess let's move forward to like your career's taken off, and I, I got to witness this, man. You, you did it. You did it yourself. You were putting your records together, and I remember you going to other countries and journalists interviewing. So, what was that like when you just started to take off and travel the world on your own? 
merit. Like you didn't have people backing you up. It was just you. What a bold move. Cause I've never done that. Only time I've ever really gone on major tours to other countries. I had backing, I had a record label, I had security. How was that for you? It was crazy. And the first time I did a, like a legit full European tour, the whole continent, I was living with you. And remember um, Evelyn, who was like oh, yeah. Mike's girlfriend or friend yep. at the time. So this was before cell phones and Evelyn's from Belgium. So I had this full tour, European tour booked all by myself. And I, I'm smart in some ways, but I'm so stupid in other ways. And my sense of direction and sometimes how to get things done. I can't make sense of maps, you know, like math and maps is just not me. So here I am flying all by myself to Europe without cell phones, um, trying to figure out train systems in countries that aren't very good with English. And they all have different currencies. The Euro wasn't around yet. So every country had their own sort of cash. Crazy. Okay. And my tour was booked by a French um, booker who could hardly speak any English. So I, whenever I could find an internet cafe is when I would catch up on details or information that I needed. And I had a, I had to get calling cards and find pay phones and figure out how to use the system in order. I'd have to call him and Hey, be like, Hey, no one's at the train station to pick me up. What's going on. I have no idea what to do. And finally, I found myself in some part of Europe where Evelyn was able to visit. And I remember she came backstage, gave me some chocolates from Belgium, and she pulled out a map. And she said, look at what you're doing. (laughs) And she like zigzagged over the map. And she's like, every day, you're like zigzagging Europe. He's like, how do you even, I was like, I don't even sleep. After the show, I go to a train station and I wait for my train. And then I end up in another country that I don't know what's going on. And then I have to call someone like, hey, how come no one's here to pick me up? And I, there's a wonderful video that surfaced recently that I'm, I'm going to put on my own uh, YouTube at some point. But uh, my first time playing Greece and I missed an airplane. So I, I, I arrived while the show was happening. So they rushed me from the airport into the show and someone recorded everything like from me getting into the club, doing my whole show and just how crazy it was and just very underground, smoky, dark Greek hip hop and Sage Francis with his wig on and like being a weirdo and sleep deprived. It probably looks like I'm on crack, but um, I just, I was pushing myself and thankfully I was in good enough shape where I could pull it off. There's no way. Like you have to be in your early 20s to to do anything like that. To even be dumb enough to attempt it, you have to be in your early 20s. But um, yeah, this, those were those were my first time. Like when, and also it's the first time I was in these places. So you're also inspired by the newness of everything. Whereas if you do something enough times, you're like, you know, I already seen that. I've already done that. That's, you know. So I think I. I had an extra push just because it was so brand new and I never knew if I'd ever get to return to any of these places ever again. It was very, you know, people in my family don't travel like that. No one knows about the music life. No one knew about, you know, I couldn't get any pointers. I had to figure out every single thing as I went along Um, as a rapper rapping off of a CD player, my Walkman that, you know, CD Walkman that I would travel with. I had a backpack with my CD Walkman, And um, I probably snuck enough tapes where I could make some cash and live off of that when I didn't have a show. But yeah, that was, I forget the original question because I'm kind of lost in the the memories of just how bizarre and insane it was. It's amazing. And it's it's always fascinating for me hearing the sort of pre-internet days of touring, especially when you don't have a road crew, a tour manager, you're not even with, you're not even with a DJ. I love that. So rather than paying another guy to come out with you, you just put all the beats onto a CD and play that from a discman on stage. Yeah. So that was um, to be able to develop a one man set was important because um, once you add another person into the mix, you double your expenses and you split your profits. And I wasn't making enough money at the time to afford that. So to have the type of 
show and the hip hop crowd can be very snobby. So if you didn't have a DJ, you know, probably 70% of the hip hop listeners would be like, fuck this, this is fake. This, you need a DJ. So I needed to be as good. I had to be good enough for them to forget the fact that there was no other person on stage. It was just me. So what kind of magic can I whip up? in this moment to own the crowd, make them forget that I'm doing karaoke basically. <laughs> and, um, and have them leave feeling inspired. Like, damn, I've never seen something like that before. I can't wait to check it out again or see what else, you know, what else is out there like this. And, you know, we did have our own type of sub scene within hip hop, uh, which has, you know, kind of stuck around a little bit, but everything's changed drastically over, especially over the last 10 years. Um, but I have noticed it's much more common for people to go up on stage and rap without a DJ. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty much unheard of back then. And the shout out to Graham Buffet for putting me onto the idea that you can just, you put a CD Walkman, plug a CD Walkman into the system and rap. If that isn't punk rock, I that don't know that. what is. Well, exactly. That's, that's exactly <laughs> it too, you know, and speaking of punk rock, I mean, you, you got ended up eventually getting signed to Epitaph Records, which to me was like the coolest fucking thing, man. And I love the, the DIY ethos and hearing this now, and, and it's just so cool. And also, side note, Grand Buffet, wow, so good. Odd, odd stuff, yeah. but brilliant, brilliant guys. So how did, how did let's, let's push into Epitaph. So how did that even come about? How did you eventually go from being independent, doing it all on your own, to eventually getting to that point where a record label like Epitaph is reaching out to a rapper. Yeah. So the, the president of Epitaph was Andy Kauf, Andy Culkin. Um, and I think he started noticing similarities in what we were doing in independent hip hop to what they had done in the punk scene in the eighties, which was like the second or third wave of punk rock that was very DIY based, but there was also a huge audience for it. And once they learned how to tap into the audience um, or not tap into it, but access, give them access to the albums so that they could financially support the artists that they loved and the albums that they loved. Boom. Like offspring sells a million records, you know, it's stuff that would propel the label they saw happening in the indie hip hop scene where we were all DIY. We were all running our own record labels, but they knew we didn't have um, that. We weren't able to get our albums out to as many people as would support it. And Andy would come to my show people cause they were snooping around. They're in LA. There's a great hip hop scene in LA, very good underground hip hop scene in Los Angeles. And he was just asking, he would go to record stores and say, hey, who should I check out? And then um, I think several people pointed him in my direction. So he picked up my CDs and then he came to see me play a show when I was in LA. And I just showed up with my CD player and a brief, no, a suitcase. I would, so I walked into the venue, opened my suitcase and started selling merch to fans. And he was like, man, I haven't seen that type of activity since I was a kid. Cause he grew up in DC. So the hardcore scene um, with a uh, um, minor threat. So he went to the same high school as Ian Mackay. And so he was familiar with all, all that, but he had never seen it in this context. And he was like connecting dots. And I think he was like, man, we can make this, this can be bigger. You don't have to change anything about you. You don't have to change anything about how you make your records. What you're doing is great. Your fans love it, but let's let's do the business on a level where we can all make more money off of it by <clears throat> making sure all the stores have it and make sure we promote it and make sure we raise your recognition level so that not just your fan base knows about you, but you know, a punk fan base can start to learn about you. So if they they put Makeshift Patriot on the Punkorama CD and I was, I love Punkorama CDs, you know, they were super cheap and they were just like long playlists of, of various bands. And that's how a lot of people became familiar with Sage Francis because <clears throat> of course there were naysayers and they like punk kids who hated the fact there was a hip hop song on Punkorama, but it opened up a lot of them to the idea that rap wasn't what they thought it was. And it's the first time, like I can't, every single show that I do, someone tells me, man, 
I learned about you from Punkarama CD, and that's how I first got into hip hop. I hear it all the time. It's insane how often I hear that. So the outreach I was able to achieve through that connection is invaluable. I'm very happy that I worked with Epitaph. I think their love affair with hip hop died out quickly after 2005, 2006, 2007, where everything in the industry became much much more difficult. Hip hop, um, they didn't know how to like really push hip hop records. I think they just lost the luster for the new, you know, the honeymoon was over at that point. And I still had two records to do with them. And I, I wish we had worked something else out, but I'm still, I do not regret working with Epitaph. And Andy's the man, he championed me for so long. So I'm happy I did that. I did wish I was more, I could be more independent after that first record. Cause now my, my fan base is even bigger and, and now I have the money to press up my own CDs and I already have my distribution company. So my infrastructure's figured out and that's, you know, I, once I was able to do a record after the epitaph deal, we did great. Copper gone was the last um, solo stage Francis studio album. And it charted and just us, just us strange famous records, which is me and like two other people. <laughs> you know, and we, it sold really well. I made a lot more money off that than I did with the epitaph stuff because there's, you know, there's not a big company taking a huge chunk of the profits. So I was fortunate to make it to that point and do that. Now, again, the world is, and the industry has changed so much since even then that was 2014. This is, we're in a whole different era now. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, one thing I definitely wanted to pick your brain about is when you're a creative person, that well never runs dry. You're always thinking up ideas and, you know, you always want to create. But I found that it's the, the, the independent hustle is what takes its toll on, on certain artists. And it can be quite hard when you don't have a team of people around you, a big financial infrastructure powering the thing. Um, how do you retain momentum as, as an independent underground artist, Sage? And how do you keep that train going when sometimes it feels like you're going up against you know the biggest battle and it's it's all for nothing and and we all have those moments but what in the past has been the thing that spurred you along and kept you motivated and inspired once i gained the momentum the inertia helped when i when i knew there was payoff for the work that i was doing and it's true as an independent artist and as a DIY artist, most of your time, energy, and effort is not going into fun, creative things. It's going into boring work. Um, well, nowadays, hard like work, social media posts. It takes you away from... <laughs> that is work. I mean, you know, it all boils down to... Man, as a as a label owner, and I have to deal with artists who are reluctant or have been reluctant to be active on social media... And I'm like, this is our only line to the fans, okay? Unless we pay a publicist and there's no guarantee that they'll get any kind of traction. And I'll, I'll just say it straight up. Publicists have been the greatest waste of money in my entire career, through and through. And they're the ones who just take the money up front and they're like, no, whatever they do, they do. You know, there's no, you and can't say, you hey, get, can I get my money back? Because you didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> so social media was always the lifeline for independent artists. And, um, and then uh, social media companies started making it more difficult for us to reach our fans without us paying for it. Uh, Facebook is criminal for that because we populated that website. We, we built these large followings and then they make us pay for all the, the people that we brought to their website and engaged with, and they sold advertising on and collected their information. And now they want us to pay them money to reach our fans. It, it drives me nuts. Um, but enough inertia kept me going. Um, and it was paying my bills. Um, it was, it was, you know, I was touring and I could see fans, you know, the love from the, the following means a lot. I love, you know, that I put my thoughts and ideas and feelings into my artwork and then it's reciprocated. That's a good exchange. Um, I'm not much of a social person. Um, I've never been a party guy. I don't do after parties. I don't want to hang out. I want to work. I want to make music and, you know, be with the one or two people that I truly understand and know that's comfortable for me. Mm, that kept me going for 
years, right up until 2010. I toured relentlessly from 1999 until 2010. Then I made a concerted effort to stop touring. I thought I was like, I'm done. You know, my I was in Western Canada when my dad passed away and I had to fly after a show back home, bury my dad, then fly back to the West Coast so I could play the Fillmore in, in, in San Francisco. And um, you go through, when you work your life away, I'm getting emotional because. Hmm. Yeah, I feel that, man. <laughs> I, know, I know what you're talking about, brother. The road can pull you away from really like life altering events and you can't get that back. It's hard. I know. And that's the one thing I would say uh, to give you a breath here um, coming off the road this past year and being home and being present and like being still has been incredible. So I could see why you would hit that sort of roadblock in touring and you just kind of want to readjust and figure your life out. So I'm assuming that's, you know, it's hard and people, you know, and people don't realize that if you haven't toured, if you haven't worked a career like that and been on the road and traveled everywhere, people always see it as this like charmed life and it's beautiful. It's amazing, but there is a, a dark side to it. There's a downside to it. And I feel you on that brother. So yeah, I, I completely understand what you're saying and I can't even imagine, you know, I, I, yeah, still I think, I think my mentality at the time was how much of my life am I really going to give to this? Um, I was getting up there in age, uh, you know, I was in my thirties at that point and I realized I had built a career. I held, I, I built a record label. I didn't have a family. Um, and all, all my friends were just scattered around the world. Like people I work with in, in music. Um, and then after four years of, I did some touring, I did shows to pay the bills, but I wasn't like touring relentlessly. So from 2010 until 2014, I tried to chill out. And in that time period, I realized, holy shit, I don't have anything except like, I have nothing to do. I'm a shut in. I don't go anywhere. I have nothing to do except for work in the house, which is what I did. I wrote a song about it called Make Em Purr when, you know, I thought I was losing my cat and then my whole world comes crumbling down. It's like, Jesus Christ, I got to get the fuck out of the house. What am I going to do? I'm going to go make money in tour again. So like, I'm going to put together this record. I put together Copper Gone. Um, I address all the things I'd been feeling and dealing with. Um, again, here we go. Start touring. I started touring relentlessly again from 2014 right up until I started doing Epic Beard Men albums with B. Dolan, that's when stuff slowed down financially. Cause again, you bring someone else into the mix and then people weren't familiar with the name Epic Beard Men and just didn't take it as serious as you should with a great name like that. And, um, <laughs> but that's, that's how I, I met my wife. It was the very first show we did um, on tour as Epic Beardman, uh, we did a free show in Connecticut and I, I didn't know her at the time. I, she was familiar to me cause I'd seen her at other shows, but I was able to make a connection with her there and stay in touch. And I, I was just blown away. I was like this, I know I could have married several people. I've been involved with wonderful people. I've had good relationships, but there was always something in me that said it was unsure and with this person as soon as i met her there was something i felt there was an energy i felt where i was like this is it like this is i'm gonna marry this woman like that's the first thing i said to be when we were driving when i first made a connection with her like i was able to talk to her and i looked at him i was like dog i'm gonna fucking marry this girl <laughs> and lo and behold after i come home from tour you know, we went through a lot of things together in a short period of time. Um, and she already had two young daughters. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I've never thought about having kids in my life, but here I am. I'm a stepdad all of a sudden. And I had one of the best stepdads in the world, you know, and he had passed away in 2010, but I'm going to carry that torch. And fuck, I, my whole life is inside out now. I had to, like, I bought, the house I grew up in in Rhode Island, I bought that house as an adult 
and I thought I was going to live there forever. I had to leave that house and move to Connecticut. I had to buy another house. I had to, like everything about my life is different now. I'm raising children. I have my own baby boy. And um, for me to try to get into the mindset that I, I've been in for my entire adult life is kind of impossible. It's kind of impossible. I, I can make music. I will make music. But what I'm going to do here forward, it, it's impossible. I can't imagine people are going to listen to it and be like, it's the same old Sage Francis. It's like, it's going to be so different. <sighs> Maybe in a way, I feel like there's fans out there. If people have listened to my music and then they first heard I got married, they probably went, eek. <laughs> that old Sage Francis that we're familiar with. He's, he's gonna lose he's his gone. edge because he's happy. <laughs> yeah, and then they, then they heard I had a kid, and they were like, "Oh no, that's it's done." There's, like, there's no way because everything, uh, my my whole identity in the music in my music was how I'm free from anchors and I can go and do anything I want and talk however I want about anything. I cannot do that now, so I will have to figure out workarounds, and I am. But uh, I also don't have a lot of free time to, to, to just kind of be meditative, um, which I like to do on my music. I, you know, my, the way that I create my brain, I go into several rabbit holes in my brain and I have to have unbroken thought. I have to, I have to stay concentrated on one thing for long enough so that the special thing comes about that I can capture. And now I have to figure out how to how to create and make interesting stuff without that luxury. That's where I'm at. Wow. But let me ask you this, Sage. Are you in yourself genuinely really happy? And is is that not the best thing, right? Peace. I I am. And I, I feel things I, I never, you know, I never considered. Um for as because I've lived over 40 years without having a child. And um so it's all I know. All I know is, is being, um, not a parent <laughs> now. Um, <laughs> so the things I, I was scared. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know I could get somebody pregnant because I had gone so long without even having a pregnancy scare. So when my wife told me that she was pregnant, I like, I was like, what the fuck? Really? And like, even at that moment, I could feel something change in me. When my son was born, I was scared. I wouldn't feel all the things people say that you feel about a child. You know, it's like the most beautiful experience. And I'm like, it's a baby. You know, like, I'm going to love it, obviously. But am I really going to feel that extra level of whatever that deep thing no one can truly explain? And I was so scared I wouldn't have it. And I, I, I'm happy to say I do have it. I can, I can work myself hard every day. Um, I can burn myself out. But if I hold my son for, for five minutes, it rejuvenates me. It rejuvenates my spirit. I feel lighter. I'm, I feel better overall. And it's such a beautiful thing. And it's weird that he looks so much like me because I look so a lot like my biological father. So when I saw him and I could see my biological father in his face, I'm pretty sure I said, what the fuck? Like, I, <laughs> like, I think that just came out of me right, right when he came out, it was a traumatic birth experience. It was scary. Um, doctors and nurses were ru rushing around. Like, I don't want to get into how all that happened, but he came out kind of unexpectedly. They didn't know he was going to come out as soon as he did. And then all of a sudden there was a baby in the mix and it, like he had this little CGI face that looks like mine and it fucking freaked me out and um <laughs> so so you look like a little cgi fake doll with my face on it and i'm like this is too too crazy this is way too crazy um and now that we're like six months into the whole thing everything's becoming more and more beautiful less traumatic and um it's just incredible and i do have to slow down everything that my life was about right up until that point and without regret, I don't, it like, I don't ever look at it as a thing that I'm like, Oh, darn it. I can't do what I love to do. Cause this thing's around. No, it's, I'm so happy. And I'm so glad to have an excuse not to go back to, to just like drilling myself into the ground with stuff that doesn't accumulate into a greater life experience that. So that's, that's what I'm going through right now. 
maybe you know, like, and I can't even think about doing shows. I can't think about touring. There's no way I'm going to tour. Um, so I'm happy it happened when it happened because I couldn't tour anyways with the pandemic hit. And I had like, I, I knew a baby was on the way. So I, I thought I was going to be able to sneak in a bunch of high paying shows that would like keep us sustained throughout the year. Then damn, like they all had to get canceled. I had to lose the money I, I spent on, you know, buying certain flights and hotels. I did, I did everything, but then I was, I was happy. I was like, man, I'm so glad my hand was forced to do this because the inertia I was experiencing was keeping me going in that direction that needed to get changed. So yeah, uh, it's um, as much as fans might not like to hear it. I, I don't see myself ever going back to what um, they're, they're familiar with. I hope to do my best to present a different Sage Francis experience that is um, enjoyable, but not, it can't be the same. That can never happen again. It's just impossible. You can't, you can't recreate what doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Wow. That's mind blowing to me, man. It's beautiful. And I love seeing the emotion on your face and hearing you say these things. Cause it's, I'll be honest with you. It's kind of what I assumed you seem just from my observations on social media, that there is a void filled in a way in your, in your life. And it's beautiful to see that. And I love that. And I can relate in my own way. I don't have children and I, I can't imagine that aspect of it, but just the whole slowing down and sort of reevaluating your life and having life off the road and that, you know, that pace of slowing down and being able to like be in one spot for a long time. It's very foreign to me as well. Cause I've been on the move constantly, but um, I'm okay too. You know, it's, it's that moment where you just sort of look at your career, you look at everything you've accomplished, you take stock of it and you're happy for it. But there's a certain amount of like, at least, you know, from what I'm gathering from you and how I feel too, is satisfaction. Like if, if someone told me that I couldn't tour anymore for whatever reason, that used to scare the shit out of me when I was younger. But if you were to say that to me now in this day and age and where my mindset is now, I'd be like, I'm going to be okay. I'll navigate it. I'll figure it out. And I've never I been suppose for, for, for both of us who have toured so much in our life, we've experienced so much of the road. We are, we are um, lucky to have experienced all of that. So again, that's a, that's another good reason why things happen when they did, because I have no regrets. I can't say to myself, damn, maybe, you know, I wish I could have done this thing or that thing. Like I already did all those things. You know, like I wasn't, um, I wasn't shocked and forced into a situation I wasn't ready for. Um, I just was so familiar with my previous life and so good at it. Like, that's another thing. It's like, damn, like I, I became so good at things that are not beneficial to me anymore. Um, and even posting on social media, I feel bad because I, I don't want to look at someone else's kid every day, but all I want to do is post pictures of my kid. So I have to temper that. Like I do my best, but now I look at my Instagram. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just a long scroll of like Frankie. <laughs> you know, it's like, how do I post something else? I can't even think of like what to do. So I like that, that is a weird struggle I'm feeling right now. Like Twitter is a little bit easier for me. Cause I can just talk trash or say something funny, but on Instagram, I'm in the house all the time. I don't, what am I going to take pictures of uh, other than my kid who I think is the most beautiful and amazing thing in the world. So obviously I just always am taking videos and pictures of them, but I can't post them, all of them. I had to create a private Facebook group that no one else can see except just family members. Cause like to, to, to so that it would satisfy my need to share <laughs> yes, I all the, all the baby pictures. Oh, I love that. I, well, I'm enjoying the the posts I see that have y your family life. I love it. I, I could overdo it though. No, it's funny. I love it. I could I, overdo I, it. I think it's funny. Dude. Oh my God. This is fun. I, I, I'll be honest with you, man. It's really nice to reconnect with you and hear, and hear, hear what I thought I was going to hear, but to, to get deep on, on that and see your process and moving into fatherhood. And then I, I'm just, I really enjoyed this talk. It's great, man. It's just really good to see you doing well. I did brother. too. 
Uh, you too, man. Emotional. I, mean, I don't want to leave Matt out of this. How are you? How are you feeling, yeah, Matt? Well, Matt's the great observer. He'll 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 come in with some gems. I'm sure. I have thoroughly enjoyed sitting back and not just watching you two connect, but seeing somebody that I don't know find so much joy and happiness from parenthood. And I can relate to that because the majority of my closest friends are now all fathers. And so over the last few years, I've witnessed a transition and a change in all of them, all for the better. Um, so the the change that you've been experiencing, although I didn't know you prior, um, you talking about it is just, you know, it's inspiring to me. I, I'm always toying whether, whether I want to be a father or not, and I still don't know. But when I see people like you find complete and utter pure happiness from it, it just warms me to the core. And I love it. And yeah, what a beautiful chat. It's been lovely getting to know you, man. Thank you. And and as just one last note on fatherhood, what, what kept me away from ever wanting to be a father or actively pursuing fatherhood was the fear that it would change me in a in a very deep way. And because I was so happy with like knowing who I was. And um I can attest to the fact that it does change you <laughs> and it's not for the worse, but it's, it's, it's scary. It's this type of change that is scary to people who are very happy with playing uh, a Simon and Garfunkel record over and over and over again. I am the type of person who, you know, just as a throwback as a callback, right? Dude, now. That was good. No, Boom. bring it. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's like the it's like the mic drop moment. The comedian brings back the joke from the beginning. That's I dude back it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I could talk to you for a much longer time, but you navigated this conversation. It was I just felt like I was along for the ride, and it was just nice to hear you open up and and go deep and share with us that stuff because it's really cool. And I think for anyone listening or watching to see the perspective of of somebody who from the ground up built a career and became an international name and the great thing i'll say about this is i have fans that are fans of you as well and when they make the connection of the two or i'll see somebody on tour that's wearing you know um a hip-hop shirt and we start talking hip-hop and somebody will mention or i will mention your name and people light up and then they're like no shit and when i see that connection happen to me that's just beautiful that just speaks volumes about music and culture and especially the time frame we came from where you're talking about the freedom there and before the internet and all these things that we're able to cultivate. And now we're living in such an oversaturated society, which is beautiful. The internet can do amazing things, but it's also sort of taken away the magic of where we came from. That sort of thing where you did things, you didn't have to take a selfie to prove it happened. You were out there just doing it. And people were telling stories about it. And you got a reputation based off of people talking about it. And I, I love seeing that journey from that to where you are now. And now we can navigate this, this world we're living in. And you have such a different mindset because of where you came from and what you've been through. And I think that's the essence of being a true artist and, and morphing into who you are now and being comfortable in your own skin. And I can say that for myself too. I went from a place of sheer insecurity and and the road changed me and gave me confidence and allowed me to see things and see myself in a different light. And when things slowed down this past year, I realized how much more comfortable I am in my own skin. And I'm okay with not having to be the success or the buzz of everyone. I don't have to be the best front man in the world. Like all that stuff I used to really strive for, I don't care much for it anymore. And because of that, I think my art has changed and my outlook has changed. And come what may, you know, I'm I'm happy too now in my own life and where I'm where I'm at and what a nice place to be where you can say that shit and really mean it and not have that thing in the back of your mind as an artist like we got to get out in the next tour we got to fucking crush this shit we got to sell records we got to success and I got to pay my bills <laughs> it's 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 cool to be at that place and it's so nice to hear you verbalize that it's it's dope man it makes me really happy thank you Gen well I look forward to catching up more yeah in a, in a in another format yeah that'd be great and when the world becomes less crazy it would be very nice to share a meal with you and and really powwow yeah i'm sure we could share a lot of cool stories on the road yeah i miss you too brother and how cool is that right mm -hmm. i mean when we last spoke randomly in a, in a club in providence rhode island for like a good five ten minutes or so we again passing ships 
and the, the war stories we both could share. I'm sure we could we could laugh and cry together. It would be great. So yeah, we'll figure that out when the world's <laughs> when the world turns back over into allowing us to sit at a table and break bread for sure. I'd love that. Let's raise a toast right. to the past, the future, in this moment <laughs> yeah. right here. Cheers. Cheers. Cup of tea. <laughs> Cheers. Brilliant, man. Thanks for thank tuning you. in, everyone. We'll see you here next week uh, on Stoke the Fire. Sage Francis, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. And uh, I hope we can meet in person someday, thank too. Thank you. Sage, much love to you, brother. Yeah, I'll see you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.